Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you, team. Thank you so much for joining. Great to have you. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt. DACA. Oh, my. A lot to discuss on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program and President Trump's Recent uh, dealing, wheeling and dealing with the Democrats. He is saying some stuff that has members of his base concerned. Some of his most uh, ardent defenders in the media are going so far as to say they wish it was a President Pence. Um, I think that is premature, but I also think that we need to be very clear about what is at stake here. So let's get into DACA, and and then later on I'll tell you more about what we can expect in the rest of the program. But I want to jump into DACA straight away. So here's what we know, because you can just read it off uh, off of uh, President Trump's Twitter feed. He's saying that he, well, he's saying that this is something that he's going to do, that this is something that he wants to go for, and that all of a sudden, I'm trying to find the, uh, the exact tweet here, but... Well, here, I've actually got a, a clip of him talking about it. Clip one. The wall will come later. We're right now renovating large sections of wall, massive sections, making it brand new. We're doing a lot of renovations. We're building four different samples of the wall to see which one we're going to choose. And the wall is going to be built. It'll be funded a little bit later. Okay, he's saying the wall is going to be built. It's going to be funded later. He's saying, give it time. I know, sorry about that. There's a jet engine there, but that was audio that we want to play for you. Because he's saying it's going to get built later. But there are some other parts of the statement that I think are concerning. And, and let me, I found where I was, what I was looking for on Trump's Twitter feed here, which is like, you know, these, these are really, Trump has turned Twitter into an official communications platform for the administration. Uh, he, he tweeted out last night, and this is when the social media world went nuts over this one. No deal was made last night on DACA. Massive border security would have to be agreed in exchange for consent would be subject to vote. The wall, which is already under construction in the form of new renovation, this is another tweet, of old and existing fences and walls will continue to be built. Does anybody really want to throw out good, educated, and accomplished young people who have jobs, some serving in the military, really? This is quite a ways away in terms of the tone and rhetoric from build the wall, build the wall. And I remember I watched those rallies. I heard Trump talking about it. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be, and I didn't could have pulled together a, a, a super cut of it, a, a montage because we need a montage of, uh, of Trump talking about how the wall is going to get built. It's going to get done. Um, he also said that, 
This is not about amnesty or citizenship. It's about letting people stay. I'm going I'm going to tell you right now, I take I take issue with some of this and I'll explain why. But I also want to say this is not done. Nothing is done yet. Here's what he said about citizenship. Not looking at citizenship. We're not looking at amnesty. We're looking at allowing people to stay here. We're working with everybody, Republican. We're working with Democrat. I just spoke with Paul Ryan. He's on board. Everybody's on board. Uh, they want to do something. We're not talking about amnesty. We're talking about uh, we're talking about taking care of people. People that were brought here, people that have done a good job and were not brought here of their own volition. Okay, we are talking about amnesty. Let's be very clear on that. If Congress passes any form of permanent status, of legal status, period, actually, it doesn't matter. You will never, you will never be able to change that. It's just not going to happen. Remember, we are where we are right now because Congress would not do this under the Obama administration. And so President Obama, with his whole, I've got a pen and a phone, I'm going to go around Congress, which any honest, constitutional scholar, historian, analyst, you name it, said was really unsettling stuff for the president of the United States to say. Congress won't do what I want, so I'm just going to do it because I'm the president. That was what Obama did on DACA. And... He was also going to lose in the courts on this, I should note, on on, on uh, DAPA, Deferred Action for the Parents of Arrivals, and I'll get into some of that as well. Uh, but once you give people driver's licenses, work permits, and it's all nice and legal via Congress, do we really think we're going to say, okay, it's been five years, and you've had your driver's license, and you've been paying taxes or getting the earned income tax credit, which means you actually get money back from the federal government, which for people of a certain level of wage earning would be the case. But do you really think after four or five years of that, or even a couple of years of that, you're going to get the Congress to say, you know what, we're going to withdraw any legal... You're now subject to deportation. I should note that subject to deportation is different from you're being deported, but you are subject to deportation. That's not going to happen. So we should be clear about this before we see what the result is from Trump's negotiation with Pelosi and Schumer. We should be very uh, upfront about what is at stake and what is going on here. So with that, let me tell you. Okay, then he said that the wall is already under construction in the form of new renovation of old and existing fences. The promise was not we're going to take the a few hundred miles. I forget what the total number is. It's like a third of the border has some kind of barrier on it right now. The promise was not we're going to put some new you know, some some new uh, coats of paint on the existing wall, on the existing border, and we're going to make it look nice. Uh, we're going to make it nice and make it bigger. And no, no, a wall is a wall. A wall is a barrier to entry from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico. That is what the wall was supposed to be. He was very explicit about this. And this was one of his most central campaign promises. I should note that if we were if we wanted comprehensive immigration reform, Marco Rubio was open to that. If we wanted comprehensive immigration reform, I even think you would have gotten Ted Cruz to be willing to to deal on it a bit. Although now it looks like Cruz is actually much more likely to have been hard on the border than uh, or on border security than Trump. But but like I said, it's not done yet. I understand that. I'm not trying to jump ahead of where this currently sits. 
but it's a little disconcerting. This whole we're going to make the parts of the wall that already exist more wall-like or better or double fencing instead of single fencing. Okay, but as we all know, if the fence is only in one place and it doesn't continue on, or the wall, whatever you want to call it, it's not much of a barrier, right? You can just go, okay, I'm going to go around the open side of it. So it needs to be a uh, contiguous. It needs to keep going. Otherwise, it doesn't have all that much benefit. I know that in some places there are natural, there are, are you know, there's rivers or there, there are natural um, boundaries in place. And there are high traffic areas where a wall matters more than the absolute middle of nowhere. But, I mean, we're a long ways from, like, there are just a few spots here and there where you can get through. I mean, there's a lot of open territory. And, and the border is currently still very much open. Uh, but Trump then says, does anybody want to throw out good, educated, and he writes rather, good, educated, accomplished young people who have jobs, some serving in the military? Really? All right. This is, this is a, this requires some nuance. This requires some, uh, some background, some research and working through this, because if you allow this to become a battle of talking points, DACA wins. If it's just, are you really going to throw out this? Look at this valedictorian. Look at this person who is uh, here, brought here illegally, no fault of his own, serving in the United States military. You're going to throw this person out? I should note that the, the argument should not be about whether you're going to deport everybody in DACA or not, or covered under DACA or not. The argument should be about two things. One, what would you get if you did, in fact, allow people to stay under DACA and allow Congress to make this permanent? Whether they call it permanent or not, it's permanent. Amnesty is forever. Amnesty doesn't go away. So that's one part. What's the quid pro quo here? What do you get if you're Trump, if you allow Congress to pass legislation? Remember, you could veto it, right? If you allow Congress to pass legislation about DACA. And then on the other side of it is, what would it mean? for you to allow there to be an amnesty, which is what DACA is. Do not, I, I'm not going to, I remember this. I remember all these fights under the Obama administration talking about a pathway. It's not amnesty. Uh, oh, you got Nancy Pelosi taking that line too, I should note. We're not looking at amnesty. We're oh, no, no. Look at amnesty. We're not looking at amnesty. Well, that's in the bill. Yeah. That's in the bill. Well, you know what, maybe. Yeah, you know, I, I can't, the, I, I, I'm not here to respond to tweets. You asked me about the meeting. I'm telling you about the meeting. I'm telling you where we are on it. I think the issue of citizenship is not just about these young people, which would be justification enough, or about other undocumented uh, uh, immigrants in our country who would, and under a comprehensive immigration reform, should, in my view, be on a path, a long-term path, an earned path. This is an earned path to citizenship, whether it's work, military service, education. Uh, it's not just about them, though, as important as that is. It's about who we are as a country. Oh, there we go. There's the big lineup. It's, 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 it's about who we are as a country. And if you don't agree with them, that's not who we are as a country. This is the way they do it. Right? This is how they're selling the campaign all the time. Oh, that's not who we are. We're a nation of immigrants doing the jobs Americans won't do. Because, yeah, Americans, we're so lacking in industriousness we're so lazy we're so incompetent we you know it's not like we've created the most powerful economy military and political entity on the planet right i mean it's not in world history you know we're just a bunch of lazy americans we, we need foreigners to come in and do our jobs for us because we're lazy this is part of the sales pitch from the democrats 
as part of the sales pitch. More importantly, and I, look, I feel passionately about this because I remember there was a lot of back and forth even within conservatism in the second part of Obama's uh, in, in Obama's second term because people were split on this. Republicans were split. Conservatives are split. I mean, I'll bring some you know, libertarians in here who are just going to want to pass the weed around and talk about how we should be open borders, man. Like, open borders, man. It makes the economy better. Like, this is a problem within, and I know they're not conservatives, but they're kind of on the right in some way. Uh, this is a debate that we've been having, and it seems to me like we're forgetting a lot of what we learned back in the whole Gang of Eight thing. Remember, there was a revolt against the Gang of Eight effort to create a pathway. See, there was that revolt was because we knew, we learned, and we paid closer attention. Legal status is amnesty. Amnesty will turn into citizenship. You just just give it time. Legal status also means that whatever you think the number is, the number's a lot bigger. They're going to say it's 800,000. It's really more like a few million. They're going to say it just covers people that were brought here through no fault of their own. It's going to be a lot of people who were saying, oh, I can't, my, my parents brought me here. What's your age? Well, I don't have any official documentation about any of that, but my parents brought me here against my will. Can you prove that in a court? No, but let's take it to court. Let's see how long it takes for me to get to court. And I'm going to have lawyers that are suing the U.S. government if they try anything in the meantime. So I'm just going to stay here. And I'm going to stay here under DACA whether I can prove anything about my time in this country or not. And I'm going to uh, you know, maybe get married, maybe have a kid. And then you're definitely not going to be able to tell me that I'm not staying in the country. This is the reality. That's what will happen. We can talk about how it's, oh, it's not where we are as a nation. And but let's at least be clear about what's on offer here. It's not just about letting valedictorians or wonderful people stay. And if we're going to play this game about, you know, look, look at this handful of people. There are 800,000 of them, right? Look at this handful of people that we've picked to show you that are so wonderful. You know, aren't you going to shed a tear for them? And then when we say, well, what about these other people who actually are, you know, have engaged in criminal activity, gang members, whatever? Oh, you're, you're, that's so racist. Oh, okay, well, so we only get to hear about the ones the Democrats and the media want to tell us about. And that's supposed to be representative of all this. There are so many other problems that come along. The number's going to be so much bigger. L- l- let me walk you through. Let me. Sorry, I'm going <sighs> to. That's right. I'm like Hillary doing one, one nostril, one nostril breathing. <sighs> I'm going to calm down a little bit here, Buck. I'm going to take you through why DACA, which has so much emotional pull on people. And I, I, you know, I was on a panel a little while, uh, what was it, a week or two ago at HLN and everyone else on the panel. And there's some great people, good friends on that panel. Very pro DACA. I didn't even get to make the case, but why DACA is not what you're being, it's not what you are being told it is. And it looks right now, based on what he's saying, like Trump isn't really clear on what this is. Maybe he's going to pull out a great deal and he's got, you know, 4D chess and all this. But from what he's saying right now, he doesn't really understand or does not care about the implications of what a DACA would really mean. I will walk you through them so that we are all on the same page about that. And then we'll talk a bit about whether the wall can still happen or not. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how excited you really get about tax reform. I mean, you know, just you can read the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They're like, oh, my gosh, tax reform is coming. I mean, it's like they get very excited about tax reform over there. It's a Wall Street Journal. I get why, but it's not the most, uh, you know, 
rah-rah America subject matter when you're talking about tax reform that's only really going to affect probably the corporate tax rate, which I know will help people with jobs and employment and everything, but it doesn't really get the base fired up is what I'm trying to say. Look, I want lower taxes. I want flat tax. Okay, I'm running into the next break. I can't do that. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. I really want to know, pro and con here, is Trump is Trump uh, making a big mistake? Do you think he'll make a big mistake? Hasn't made it yet. Is he in the process of making a big mistake, or is he going to surprise us all and pull a big switch here on Nancy, Chuck, and all the rest of the Democrats? Those are all possibilities. We'll talk about them. It seems like you've been doing a lot of yoga. Yes, uh, I and, have. And alternate fact, nostril breathing. Well, I wanted to have ask you. tried that? Page 27 <laughs> in your book, you talk about all, uh, alternate nostril breathing. Yes. What is that? And... Dare you give me a demonstration well, of that? Well, I would highly recommend it. Okay. You know, I mean, you're supposed to shut your eyes. I don't want to shut your shut my eyes on, on you know, okay. on national television. But, you know, you do hold, and you breathe through one, and you hold it, and then you exhale through the other, and you keep going. You breathe through one so you can relax. I know she mentioned the alternate nostril breathing and like now she's on CNN and they literally have the CNN's marquee anchor. I mean, the the biggest name at CNN, uh, although I feel like Jake Tapper would be annoyed by that. But nonetheless, I mean, and, and he's like, tell me about your alternate nostril breathing. You know what? You know what, Anderson? I'm pretty sure it's when you breathe out of one nostril and not the other. I'm just I'm just putting that out there. I Maybe. Look, I get it. She's not a you know, she's out there on the give them the book tour and everything and she's not gonna she says she's not gonna be candid anymore although i don't know i think <laughs> you know you never know with hillary so I, I i'm not expecting you're allowed to do softball interviews with somebody who doesn't really matter anymore and no one cares right i'm, I'm not but there alternate nose breathing jeff in north carolina wpti what's going on jeff hey buck yeah yeah just uh, that was quite a invitation to hillary there well thank you okay. I, I i strive for accuracy Oh, that was right on. Um, yeah, but going to the DACA thing, um, you know, what is so irritating is that people are attacking Donald Trump because he's making a move here. And we have to realize that the ultimate culprits are Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell because they ha- are standing in his way. They are the obstructionists. And I had a conversation with uh, one a, a congressman's representative today and she was adamantly standing behind her representative which he's he he's a good guy he's a very he's a he's a staunch conservative uh but he was out there saying well if donald trump made this deal we're going to have to walk it back okay there was no deal made and he was out there saying that before we even knew the facts and the fact was there wasn't a deal made donald trump has got to shake it up because Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have pushed him into the arms of parasites. I, 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 uh, okay. uh, well, we'll talk I, about DACA. Thanks for calling in, Jeff. Talk about DACA and what's really going on here and much more uh, coming up in the next segment. Stay with me. Now, we're for sensible border security, as I mentioned. And there are a lot more ways, effective ways of securing the border than a wall. It's a medieval solution for a modern problem. A Game of Thrones idea 
for a world that is a lot closer to Star Wars. So yeah, what's the st- that's Chuck Schumer and Buck Sexton back with you here. Uh, what is the Star Wars solution to people uh, literally walking across a border that is a line on a map that there is actually no nothing there? What's what's the so- we're going to set up sensors everywhere? That that's completely impractical. That's not going to work. So you know you're going to have like I don't know all kinds of stuff that'll set off those sensors, I assume. You set up cameras? Okay, well, if the camera's there, but there's nobody there to enforce anything, well... I mean, it's just, a, it's just dumb. I mean, Chuck Schumer, Pelosi, they're lying. They don't want border security. They don't care about border security. They want more people coming into the country illegally because people that come into the country illegally are disproportionately going to need state benefits... And the Democrats are the party of free stuff. They're the party of the welfare state. And they're also the party of identity politics. And a majority of illegal immigrants who come into the country fall into one of the categories that Democrats are obsessed with referring to and breaking off from the rest of the country as an ethnic group instead of just an American, right? I mean, they they like the identity politics approach to everything. So they they want more legal immigrants. They are not in the... Border security game. Full stop. They're, they'll pretend, but they if they had their way, I think they would be open. They would be for open borders. And if you remember what Nancy Pelosi, I mean, uh, what not Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton was saying during the campaign, it was Bernie Sanders who was like, "Look, I don't know. I mean, they're going to bring all these people. They're going to compete with people for jobs. I don't, you know. I mean, what am I going to do?" And yeah, yeah, it's supply and demand all of a sudden no longer applies as a principle when you're talking about labor, which isn't true anywhere else in the labor force. But when it comes to illegal immigrants, we we just they just have to do the jobs that Americans can't do. They're they're not taking any jobs. And forget about that. I should or not not forget about it. Put that aside for a moment. We're always told, oh, they contribute more to the economy. Does that does that sound like that's likely or probable to you? Do you think somebody who comes into the country illegally without any language or job skills that are applicable in in an increasingly information and communication-based economy, which the United States is, with each year, right? Actual manual labor is becoming devalued, especially devalued through illegal immigration, illegal immigration. So do we really think that they're going to be less dependent on state benefits, which are funded by you and me, the taxpayer? It just makes no sense. And there's we could bring on the folks in the Center for Immigration Studies and they'll tell you the truth about this, but the media will keep lying. They're all valedictorians. Well, that seems like it's not right. In fact, I know that's not right. Oh, that's so racist. How dare you? Wait, but you're the one who's saying that they're all valedictorians. I'm just pointing out that's not true. Why is that a part of the discussion? We're talking about U.S. federal immigration law, not whether there are some nice people who have broken that law. I'm sure there are a lot of great people who have broken that law who are really wonderful human beings. Doesn't mean I want to just write policy based upon the fact that there are some nice people. You know what else is true? There are some really great people out there who engage in some corporate fraud or malfeasance who got sent to prison and their lives ruined. They're they're really nice. You'd like them. I've met some of them. You know, they're good people. They just did something wrong. Does that mean that now all of a sudden, you know, there's no such thing as a white collar crime? Because I mean, they're nice. They got families. This is the game that they're playing. This is the game that they're playing. So because the parents brought the children, now no one can be held accountable. Now no one's accountable for anything. That's an, an interesting distinction that they draw. Now, Mickey Kouse had a, a great, and, and he is, I think he's, I mean, he is a, I think he's a Democrat. Um, although I don't, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say because I'm not sure. 
But he's hawkish on border things. He wrote a, a commentary piece, got picked up by the Chicago Tribune, about not buying into all... Don't buy into all of that rosy PR about DACA. And it's true. DACA is a PR campaign. They have, they have managed to take, and the media is not just complicit in this, they're leading the charge. They have the most sympathetic group of illegal immigrants they can possibly find. And this is where all of the discussion has to focus. We can't talk about all the other people who are here illegally. That We can't talk about that even if we got a wall, there's a lot of other stuff that has to happen, too, to shore up our immigration system. You know, you had, uh, I think the number for 2016 was 700,000, actually, visa overstays. And a, a good chunk of them are long-term visa overstays, something in the neighborhood of a half a million. Now, does that mean they're still in the country? They don't know, but they know that they've stayed for quite a while. How many people that come to America are going to overstay their visa unless they plan on staying forever? Because if you do that, I think you can't come back for five or ten years. There's some, there's, uh, there are repercussions for that. So if you're going to overstay your visa, there's a reason. So what are we to do about that? That would mean that you have to have interior enforcement. The only, the only interior enforcement that's going to be worth anything is workplace enforcement. And if you're here illegally, you're not, you're not going to be allowed to work, which also means you're going to have to penalize employers that are hiring illegals, which if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to take these steps, a wall is great and I want a wall and all that, but now you're just going to have other people are going to find other ways to come in and stay and be in the country illegally. And if being in the country illegally is not a problem, well, then there's no argument against Then there's no argument for, for immigration. I mean, just let everybody come. If you come, you stay. Of course, the government at some level, even the even the most radical left wing status in the Democrat Party, they kind of want to know who's here so that they can both get the electoral benefits and, and you know, the census benefits of knowing who's here. Uh, you know, they want to they want to have a way to quantify the population inside the United States so that they can tax them and or know who they're going to be giving tax dollars to in one form or another. Right. So they want to know, but they don't want to stop anyone. That's always the question that I. Don't get that doesn't get asked in all these interviews with policymakers and everybody else, which is what who, who's not allowed to stay? Who's not allowed to stay? The guy who uh, killed Kate Steinle in San Francisco, he had been deported, I think, five times already. So he, he, he was clearly allowed to stay, kept getting into the country, too. I don't think that he was some sort of uh, border immigration evasion genius. I think he just managed to come to the country five times after being deported because it's not that hard. If it's not that hard, we should probably ask why. And Chuck Schumer's saying it's a Game of Thrones solution for a... Okay, well, what's Chuck Schumer's solution? The answer is there's no solution. And then that brings me... I, I, I mean, I could get into this all day. Border, people who talk about border security from the Democrat Party are lying to you. They are lying to your face. So start with that. Make no mistake about it. They are lying. Okay. And then get into what the real number is going to be. Because if you think, and this is where this Mickey Kaus column, I think, really uh, hits its stride and makes some great points. Um, there will be chain migration through this. Here's what he says. 
Uh, under chain migration rules established, uh, quote, under chain migration rules established in 1965, ironically, as a sop to conservatives who foolishly thought that they'd boost European inflows, new citizens can bring in their siblings and adult children who can bring in their siblings and in-laws until whole villages have moved to the United States. That means today's DACA recipients would become mil- would become millions of newcomers who may well be low skilled and who would almost certainly include the parents who brought them, the ones who, in theory, are at fault. If you get DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, you are going to get DAPA, which is Deferred Action for the Parents of Arrivals. That's just going to happen. No way. No way you're going to let DACA people stay in the country and then deport their parents. No way you're going to let DACA people, through an act of Congress signed by this president, stay in the country and not offer some legal status to their parents. And legal status is forever. Legal status doesn't go away. The problem with DACA under the Obama administration is that it was not legal. It was just the the president saying this is what it is. Well, that's not how it works, President Obama, but here we are. So if you get any status, you're going to have it forever. The number's going to be much bigger. And then you get into the realities of this program, which is that for you got people that are like in their 30s that are saying, oh, I was brought here when I'm a... Everybody was brought when they were five by their parents, right? That's going to be the way this goes. You say, oh, Buck, but they're going to request proof and there'll be documentation. How long do you think that's going to take? There, there are armies of activists, immigration lawyers, Democrat Party, uh, apparatchiks of one kind or another, armies of them out there who, because of the politics here, which is about changing the electoral map for the Democrats, make no mistake, that's also a big aspect of this. They're going to take up the cases of anybody, anyone who says that they're DACA. Just like I should know when we had that surge of Central American migrants at the border who were refugees all of a sudden. They were turning themselves in under the Obama administration to Border Patrol saying, here I am. And they showed up and I, I, there, I promise you there were a lot of 23-year-olds who were saying they were 16. Who's going to, you know, why not? And we found out that, that that, of course, is true. And a vast majority of those who came here have been allowed to stay inside the country. And that was just a big open door and the whole thing. But the the number is going to be much bigger. And also, they're going to abuse the bureaucratic sloth and inertia of the federal government in order to play the system. They're going to stay and they're going to sue and they're going to claim that they that they deserve all these benefits under DACA. And how can you prove they're not? And it's just and we're going to see, you know, one weepy eyed conversation on MSNBC and CNN after another and everything. You know, that's how it's going to be. It's not just going to be for valiant young people contributing to the economy in the armed first in the armed forces, valedictorians. There will be some of that, but there's going to be hundreds of thousands of just. People that were brought here as teenagers, 16, 17, 18, who knows how old, by their parents, or just came here on their own and said they were brought here and going to challenge the federal government to prove otherwise. So you will see that that's what will happen here, which then brings me to what is Trump's game here? What What is the negotiation? He's the great deal maker. To be fair, we have not seen yet great deal making in action that involves the Congress, and we had a previous caller there saying, look, you got to blame the Congress here. Okay, if you take that perspective, I still want to understand, if it's Congress's fault that Trump has to reach out to Democrats, I still want to know, well, then what's Trump's endgame here? Because if he ge- if he gives on DACA and clears the way for the Republican-majority Congress to push 
legislation through and he will sign it that enshrines a a status, a legal status for people under DACA. He's given away one of his best, most important bargaining chips in the whole immigration process. He's saying we're going to do all this stuff and we're going to get a, a, a deal and... You know, it, it should concern you that Nancy Pelosi is so favorable about this. I believe that we've had enough conversation with the president, with enough reiteration of his commitment to protect the dreamers. In fact, publicly, we saw his statements today that it wouldn't be wise to send uh, these young people back. Uh, so, uh, uh, yes, I think we have votes. So it's a question. I, I have no question that if we put the bill on the floor, it would win. And for these and other reasons, I believe that the president, uh, because of conviction, but because of uh, reality, is there for the dreamers. The president is there for the dreamers, Nancy Pelosi says. Maybe she's wrong. Maybe that's not true. But if it is true, and based on his tweets, I don't know, maybe it's all a head fake. Maybe I can't see what's coming here from him. I should, I should note, though, Ronald Reagan got swindled on an amnesty. Ronald Reagan, that's right. I'm sure for many of you listening, your favorite president of the 20th century, probably your favorite president, or at least in the top five of all time. Ronald Reagan uh, did not get what he thought he was getting with amnesty back in the 80s. This is just a fact. It was bigger than they said it was going to be. The enforcement did not happen. It was... Well, and it also resulted in, in a huge wave of more illegal immigration afterwards because they thought it would just be another time until we get an amnesty. Guess what would happen now? Oh, this is the DACA is the last time. DACA is going to be the last time. Does anybody believe that? I know you don't believe that. It's the last time we're going to have an amnesty for illegals. Start to ask the question, well, why? I mean, if I can come here and be an illegal, not pay taxes, not be prosecuted, I should note, for not paying taxes and getting paid under the table. Uh, in many cases, that's the, that is true. You know, why go through the legal immigration process? Just got to keep your head down for five, maybe 10 years. You'll have another amnesty. And the more amnesties you have, there's a momentum to this. The stronger the impulse among Democrats and Republicans of the Paul Ryan variety, are, it's going to be to have it be another amnesty. Snowballs. This is what happens. This is what this is what we're facing. So I hope I hope that Trump has some grand uh, plan in mind here. I hope that he's many steps ahead and he knows that you cannot trust Democrats, especially on this issue. And that all this happy talk from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer is going to be exposed for nonsense in the future. But I have my concerns. I have my concerns. 844-900-BUCK. Buck Sexton back with you here in the Freedom Hut team. We have uh, some lines. Let's take them. Uh, Jared in Florida on WWJB. Hey, Jared. Hey, Buck. Hey, what's going hey, on? Yeah, um, well, I, one of the things I was kind of wanting to pick your brain about was uh, all of these major issues that Trump ran on, uh, just to name a few, the, the health care, immigration, uh, and the wall, uh, and... I was wondering, you know, would he do something drastic in, in the State of the Union or uh, on another platform where he had a, a large audience uh, where he basically called on Americans or his, his base that, that voted for him to, to vote these Republicans out? That I mean, and I'm talking about the Mitch McConnells and the Paul Ryans in the House and the Senate. I mean, guys that have been there for a while, because from where we're sitting uh, in, in small town America, these guys are just as much to blame 
for obstructing his agenda as the Democrats because they've had the House, the Senate, and now the presidency, and nothing has happened. And and things like health care, frankly, are killing families like mine. You know, Buck? Yeah, well, I, I think that if the president... Um, had refused to sign some inter- some legislation that had hit his desk, you know. Then, then it really would be without question on on Trump's on Trump's head. Everything that's happened so far, but he, that that has not been the case. I mean, what well, what is he supposed to do? I, th- there is a level of okay. W- at what point does he have to just find a way to to govern with the realities of a fractured Republican Party? I mean, as to your question about or, or your, your comment about the uh, State of the Union. Uh, we'll see, man. I, I think that it's an important rule of thumb that whenever you're listening to somebody who's giving you their sense of or whether you're just talking to a friend or just anywhere, anyone who tells you they know what Trump is going to do next is giving themselves a little too much prognostication ability. I, I just don't buy it. So I don't know, Jared. Uh, he could. He's He is obviously very unpredictable and... We'll see. I'm hoping that you have some very sad faces from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer when all said and done on DACA and immigration. But I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. I hear you, man. Shield Tide, thank you for calling in. Uh, So there is all of that. Uh, We will... Get into, uh, I've got some some breaking news, a couple of topics I wanted to hit, and then, and then we've got some guests coming up in the next hour. We'll be joined by Sean Davis from The Federalist, Elena Plott from Washingtonian with some insider D.C. stuff, uh, and also someone from Red Alert Politics on the Ben Shapiro speech. It's like they're preparing for some kind of uh, end-of-days scenario at Berkeley. They're so freaked out about this. And then third hour, I have a history deep dive coming your way that I think you'll all really enjoy. It's going to be a change of pace here on the show, but the Siege of Malta is the topic. If you don't know much about it, I think you're going to hear it. It's pretty awesome. Got some breaking news for you. Buck Sexton here. You have a, a missile, unidentified projectile is being reported, but a, a missile, according to South Korea, um, has been fired by North Korea, and it has, BBC reporting here, gone over Japan. So... Another provocation from North Korea, uh, more missile testing, more missile firing, and I'm sure we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, op-eds the next couple of days telling us about how if only we have you know smarter sanctions, stronger sanctions, more sanctions, more diplomacy, we'll figure this out. I just don't see how any of that's going to stop North Korea. Until China is willing to really go to the mat over North Korea, and I don't see that happening anytime soon either, North Korea is going to keep doing more or less what it's doing. I'll give you more of a sense from uh, my perspective of where this is heading, but I don't see it changing anytime soon. I really don't. And I know that people want to believe that there's a clear diplomatic, or not even clear, any diplomatic solution here. I don't see that. If North Korea gives up its nukes, if North Korea is no longer promising its people that it will unify by force the Korean peninsula and bring together the Korean people, why does the North Korean regime exist? South Korea is much wealthier, much more prosperous. So if it's not a hyper-militaristic society that is about racial purity and bringing together all of the Korean people and protecting them from the rest of the world and bring them all under... This is from North Korean propaganda. This is what they believe. But we are told that, you know, if we just 
hurt their foreign currency reserves enough or we cut off the oil or something, it's going to solve our problems. I, I wish it were true. I just don't see that as likely. And I, I don't know where this goes. I Once again, it's kind of like when someone tells you they know what Trump's next move is going to be. And I'm like, no, you don't. North Korea. People do not know what North Korea's next move is going to be either. You just don't know. You know, they did invade back in the day, South Korea, despite the fact that it was a U.S. protectorate and close ally, and uh, we had nukes then, too. I don't know. I'm not saying it's imminent. I'm just saying North Korea could be very, very unpredictable. We live in this world of international relations that are based on us mirror imaging other leadership structures and and deciding that, well, if we were in their shoes, this is what we would do. That's That's not how this game is played. That's not how this works. North Korea's leadership, Kim Jong-un, is approaching all of this from a very, very different perspective than what you or I or anyone listening to this show would. And trying to understand that is an important, in fact, a necessary first step in this whole process of dealing with, sealing off, containing, and eventually uh, dismantling the North Korean axis of evil terror state, which is what it is. Mark in Mississippi on WBUV. How you doing, sir? Pretty good, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Uh, I just want to lay out, I know this is probably going to irritate a lot of your callers, but I just want to lay, lay out my opinion. Uh, what was Donald Trump for 90% of his life before he ran for president? A Democrat. What does what his kids registered as? Democrat. What are they married and dating? Democrat. We had one guy that we could have voted for, and I did vote for him. I voted for him in the primary, and then I voted, I voted in the same in the general election because even though I knew cause I couldn't bring myself to vote for Trump or Hillary, a guy that would have repealed and replaced Obamacare, that would have put same-sex marriages back in the state, that would have protected the borders and ISIS. Is America finally ready to admit that they voted for a Democrat instead of Ted Cruz, who would have been the best president since Ronald Reagan? I voted for Cruz in the primary. I was uh, openly pushing for Cruz when I was over at, at CNN as a, as a commentator there. Uh, I don't think that the Trump base is yet going to agree with you. I don't think that uh, that they're there yet. Um, I think that you have to see if the, if the wall gets built, then the fact that he made this or took this meeting with Pelosi and Schumer doesn't really matter. If the wall doesn't get built... That that's going to be a, I think that's going to be a problem. And, and as to whether or not he's a he's a Democrat, I think that uh, we, look, tr- Trump defies all previously held political conventional wisdom. This is one of the things about him that has been both so interesting and also from a political analyst perspective. So frustrating is that the old paradigms don't apply. He's not even to call him an independent is, isn't even really accurate. I mean, he's just Trump. You don't know what's going to happen. And you look at what's hap- You look at what his actions in office have been so far. I know Neil Gorsuch, Supreme Court. That's a big one. That's very important. The rollback of the regulatory state. That's been very helpful. The uh, favorable environment created for jobs and and economic prosperity because there's less of a sense that the government's trying to uh, engage in lots of wealth redistribution and play play Robin Hood uh, via the via the federal. Uh, federal tax collection agency. So uh, th- those are the, the good things. The wall, DACA, nothing has happened yet. It's all just a discussion still. So I don't think anyone's going to say that they, they believe they voted for 
a Democrat in terms of Trump's policies yet because he hasn't done anything that a Democrat would do. I should note that on his cave on the uh, he, he might. I'm not saying he, he won't. I'm just saying he hasn't yet. The cave on the debt ceiling. You weren't going to get Republicans united on that either. I mean, they've right. been playing that game since well before Trump. Oh, yeah, we're going to stand tall on the debt ceiling. Then like, whoops, sorry, that's really scary. We'll get blamed for it. But, but I mean, I, I hear I hear what you're saying, Mark. I mean, we this was all litigated and discussed and over the course of the primary and the general. I want you to explain one more thing to me, too. If, uh, the, if the Supreme Court passed the Obamacare and the same-sex marriage, how come they put in a proposal bill and they can actually try to put Obamacare back in the hands of the state, but we can't do that for same-sex marriage? Uh, well, I mean, you have a Supreme Court decision, so that's... But both of them were Supreme Court decisions, though, wasn't it? I'm sorry, what was? I said... Oh, you have Obergfell, which is is sitting precedent from the Supreme Court. And I know people will say, well, that's not... I I had people initially when it came out said it's not legitimate. The government treats it as legitimate. And so, you know, we will have to see. But I don't know, Mark. I mean, I don't know what... uh, I don't know what's going to happen with Trump on this one. I've been expressing my concerns, but I do appreciate you calling in. Um... Yeah, man. Thank you. Um, I think he was saying something like he loves my show. I hope that's what he's... Yeah, there we go. Woohoo! Yeah, Mark loves the show. Uh, but I should note that we have a plan that tomorrow I'm going to take some of, our, of your commentary. If you send me a Facebook message, we're going to pick some of them to uh, read on air. So, uh, you know, this is a good time to send me a message if you want to... It's kind of like email, except this is very uh, 21st century. Oh, I guess Facebook exists. Facebook started when I was in college. People forget this now. And I remember it came out... And it was a digital version of what used to be the freshman Facebook, which was used for, mm, how do I put this, the, par- the, the purposes of social invitations to on-campus events. And I, I sit in a photo, I look like a complete, uh, a total nerd in my photo, I think. It might have even been like my yearbook photo where they made us wear this little fake black tie bib thing that you had to put oh yeah it was like that i'm like why am i doing this like why can't i just have a normal photo of me the way i you know no no put on this put on this bib so you look like you're a you know a conductor in the orchestra or something i was like what uh but i remember everybody we get there and they one of the things they give you is this uh book of all the with photos it's just photos and names of all the freshmen and the whole school looks at it. And uh, there are a lot of, I remember I had friends, young ladies in my class who were receiving invitations to parties from people they had never met before. And then we all quickly figured out, oh, it's based on the Facebook. That was the Facebook before it was online. Uh, and then they put it online. And now we've got Mark Zuckerberg, who may run for president and is lecturing all of us on immigration and everything else. When in many ways, I think he's just one of the luckiest people in the history of luck. But I digress. Uh, we have our friend Elena Plotz joining us shortly here to talk about some inside the Beltway. Her sources speaking to her about everything going on with Trump, Schumer, Pelosi, DACA, all of that. Also a little tax talk. Woo, tax talk. That'll be fun. And uh, we've got some updates on the ESPN fallout. The uh, analyst, pundit, whatever we call her there. Uh, who is who tweeted out that Trump is a white supremacist. Updates about Ben Shapiro in Berkeley after that. And third hour, Siege of Malta, 1565. It's going to be amazing. I know some of you are like, what? It's a radio show. What are you doing? Well, it's a show within a show, my friends. History Deep Dive. You'll want to hear it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut team. A lot happened in the world of politics today as we have been 
discussing. And now we have somebody to give us a bit of an insider view of what's going on within the confines of the Beltway, which is really a, a fancy description of what is a pretty brutal highway when it comes to traffic. Uh, <laughs> as, as I'm sure she knows, Elena Plot is with us now, staff writer for TheWashingtonian.com and a Yaley, I might add. Elena, great to have you. Great to see or talk to you, Buck. Talking, seeing, all those things with Buck are great. Um, Before I I move on, uh, Lana, to things that that matter in the news cycle, do you think that your alma mater, I I like to give Yale a hard time, uh, because at Amherst we had to change our mascot because he was a British colonial lord who gave smallpox blankets to the Native Americans, so now I think it's like a mastodon, I think it's like a, a, or a woolly mammoth or something, it's a large, a large elephant, elephant elephant-like animal. Um, Yale is named for a lie who Yale, who was a slave trader. You, you think they're going to abandon the name ever? Because I know they've started to make some noises about changing the names of different residential colleges. So it's not just making noises. I mean, they've already done that with one college in particular, Calston College. It's now Hopper College, I believe. And, you know, it, uh, it's funny you bring this up because just with a, you know, a fellow alumnus yesterday, we were saying this time last year, we would have never thought that, you know, the namesake of Yale but at this point, I, I think there's no way to say definitively either way what will happen and, you know, make of that what you will. But even as an alumnus, I can't give you a straight answer for what will or won't happen there. I just think it's a testament to the kind of outrage culture we find ourselves in. I just like I just like to give Yaley's a hard time and also Harvard uh, hiring Chelsea Manning, which I should note, Mike Morell, former CIA um I, I forget, right. senior, I don't know if he was actually director, I forget, I had left, but uh, he resigned, so, you know, get Yale, I mean, not Yale, sorry, Harvard getting the rough stuff there, but enough of all that. Let's talk about DACA here. Um, what, what are you hearing from your people about the reaction to Trump coming out via Twitter and the White House and everything saying, yeah, DACA, we're going to do that, but but no wall right now? So my, uh, my sources on Capitol Hill, who are very senior Republican sources in the House, um, you know, they almost scoffed at me after Speaker Ryan and his press briefing said these were just discussions. They were not negotiations. No deal was finalized and the wall will continue as planned. My sources all said to me, you know, LOL, that, you know, Paul Ryan thinks that is, in fact, the case. What, what people what, what insiders on Capitol Hill right now are realizing is that Trump seems to have caught on to the fact that when he makes deals, quote, his new friends, Chuck and Nancy, he gets a much better response the Twitterverse of the world, from the Estella Corridor. And, you know, keep in mind, Buck, these were the influences that he lambasted all throughout the campaign trail and that sort of, you know, helped him win um, by such a high margin in 2016. But at this point, I sort of realizing, you know, when you're obsessed with the media, you want more favorable coverage, making deals with Chuck and Nancy might be the way to do it. And I think Republicans are sort of cowering under that understanding right now that, you know, he's going to get much more favorable if he says, I don't, you know, I don't want to deal with Mitch and Elena, I mean, I, I got I to ask you, it sounds to me like you're telling me that Trump is doing this at some level out of ego and not because he's playing 4D chess. That's, that's what it sounds like. No. And, you know, <laughs> it sounds like you don't buy the 4D <laughs> chess explanation. The fact that we're still having this conversation is a little bit sad to me. I mean, one of my White House sources who, you know, bless his heart, is still pretty optimistic that, you know, everything's going to be fine. Trump really is a conservative, says to me, you know, I don't I don't quite know what's happening right now, but he always has a long game. He always knows where where this is going to end up, to which my response is, I, I don't see at what point 
you know, backtracking on your central core campaign promise that, you know, brought you so much goodwill is going to be good for anyone or what possible long game could kind of come out of that. You know, I, I used to have some people in the White House that would even call in and enjoy and, and join me on the show to tell me what the official White House word is, but they have all departed. Uh, so I have to ask you if you could tell me, obviously, without getting into your sources, but just from what you're told, what uh, what they're telling you, uh, what is the the most pro what is the most favorable explanation of what's happened here from inside the Trump camp? From inside the Trump camp, and this is based on conversations I had yesterday and today, is that, well, this is what happens when Republicans don't unite to support, say, health care, um, health care appeal. This is um, what Trump has to do. He's pushed kind of unilaterally into the arms of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. So that's kind of what they're saying. It's Republicans' fault in the first place that he's in this position, that these are the concessions he has to make. And I think that's what you're going to see the Sean Hannity's and, you know, even Laura Ingram's. Of the we, hey, we, we love we love Sean and Laura here. We love Sean and Laura. But this is this is <laughs> Elena is entitled to her opinion about these things. <laughs> but uh, Elena, do you think that are, are they saying that there will be uh, are, are they saying that there will be a wall in the future, though? I mean, that's what I really you know, because I think that the the most um, the, the best scenario for the base is not that Trump bailed on them uh the best scenario is that it's just a matter of time before he essentially uh does a you know does a 180 on pelosi and schumer and gives them the hard the hard rough time right i mean is is that and and gets a wall built somehow is that being talked about or is it really no no republicans in congress just stink so here we are no, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both the former and the latter. I think um, you're going to have White House sources forever you know, for how, how long Trump lasts in office, for however long. It's always going to be said nothing is off the table. We are obviously working toward our core campaign promises. But you can say that indefinitely. I mean, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember pledged to repeal Obamacare on day one. And here we are. Um, so I think I think there's always going to be that spin that you know, because of Republicans, we can't do this right now. But, you know, lest you're worried, I will continue working for you, my base, and we will make this happen somehow. All right. Just uh, tell me about tax reform. <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than, OK, tax reform. Elena. By the way, it's Elena Plot, who is a staff writer at Washingtonian.com. She is a, a, a well, Beltway Bennett's, I guess, are actually those are the consultants, right, that take all of the money from inside of D.C. But I don't know. She's a a baroness of the beltway we got to come up with a cool title for you something for radio purposes but she knows a lot of stuff and she knows the folks tax reform elena what's going on yeah i am but a humble journalist um okay so tax reform what i want to first point to is that i know you you know you laughed when you brought this up but this is i think the problem that republicans on the hill are having right now tax reform is something that conservatives and even you know establishment republicans have been pushing for the longest time the problem with tax reform, though, is it, it, that it doesn't engender, say, the visceral response that DACA does. You know, when you put DACA to any kind of politically illiterate person, they'll say, oh, my goodness, save the children. You know, how dare you try to negotiate on this in any way? Like, it just needs to be set down. Tax reform, it's so much more esoteric and complicated that even if Trump gets a tax plan that is perfect for his base, I doubt you're going to see sort of visceral response rounding up the troops that you would for an issue like the wall. Yeah, tax and, reform is mostly for the donor class, not as much for the base. I think that's the way exactly. it plays out. Which is, why, which is why Speaker Paul Ryan is so dead set on making this happen, and so is Mitch McConnell. 
Mitch McConnell and so is Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Again, put the merits of the plan aside. Um, this is not something I think that will be good for Trump's popularity either way. Another thing, just, you know, practically speaking, they say they're unveiling a plan September 25th. Um, if you'll recall a few months ago that, you know, the first goalpost was that we would have this done, signed into law by July. Then it was August. And then Mnuchin said, absolutely, we will have this done by September. Now it's just we're going to have makers on September 25th. And at that point, there's so few weeks until December when they adjourn for like seven more years or, you know, whatever lawmakers do every five days that there is, I, I you know, I'll say it here as a reporter, I, I do not believe tax reform will get done by the end of 2017. And even 2018 is going to be a heavy lift. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. I'll applaud everybody. Staff writer for the Washingtonian. <laughs> so Check out her latest. <laughs> I know she's, she's a ray of sunshine folks. <laughs> Washingtonian.com. Elena, great to have you come back soon. All right. Thank you so much, Bye. Team, we are going to run into a uh, break here. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the Ben Shapiro speech at Berkeley and also uh, some fallout from the ESPN stuff coming up. Stay with me. All right, welcome back, everybody. If you want some haymakers of truth, I've got a special surprise in store for you here. Our buddy, Sean Davis, who is ready to give some roundhouse kicks to the face of the statists. He is the co-founder of The Federalist, and I promise you I did not clear those weird martial analogies before with him, but he's a good sport, so he'll let me get away with it. Sean Davis, great to have you, sir. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Jamel Hill has apologized for the ESPN tweet. I, I want your, I want the Sean Davis what's going on with all this ESPN white supremacy claims, all that stuff. I, I just want the Sean Davis version. So uh, I am amused and fascinated to no end by what's happening. So what happened is Jamel Hill, who runs a um, what appears to be a local access, public access TV channel version of SportsCenter in the evenings, uh, went on Twitter and said Trump's a white supremacist and he only won because he's white, white this, racism that, blah, blah, blah. And then people naturally got ticked because it's SportsCenter, not Politics Center. Uh, and then ESPN said, oh, no, no, yeah, what her actions were inappropriate. And then she, I think it was last night, finally came out, broke her silence. And everyone's talking about an apology, but that's not really what she did. She just said that she was sorry that she made ESPN look bad, which is really the whole, the whole problem here. That's why ESPN got mad at her, is that she confirmed publicly a narrative that everyone had said about him. them, is that they're run by a bunch of left-wing kooks. Uh, and when left-wingers go off the deep end, they're fine. But when right-wingers say something on Facebook, they get fired. Yeah, well, uh, what did so, uh, the guy who were uh, shilling, right? Wasn't he at ESPN? He got tossed for one tweet. I, I'm not even sure it was a tweet. I think it was something he said on Facebook about, or a meme about how boys should use the boys' bathroom. Oh, it was, yeah, it was a bad, that's, you're right, you're right. It was Facebook and it was the bathroom stuff, yeah. Yeah, so that'll get you fired. Um, but... Uh, Apparently going off on the president and saying white people are terrible and Republicans are racist, that, that's totally fine. Where, where do you find your balance on this one, Sean? Because I, I understand the sentiment. I don't like living in a world where you get fired for your political opinions, especially if you're not somebody who's in the political realm, right? I feel like, well, actually, no, across the board. I just don't want people getting fired for their beliefs. But I also understand that there are going to be limitations and that, you know, you can't, as I was saying yesterday, you can't say that you think that the person who owns or runs your company is a buffoon and hope to keep your job because, you know, First Amendment, it it doesn't work that way. So how do you try to strike a balance here between 
we all know there's a huge double standard. So conservatives are going to get fired for this stuff. Does that mean that we should just establish one standard and that everybody should be subject to firing? Or should we say that nobody should be subject to firing? You know what I mean? I, I, see, I see conservatives on both sides of this. Uh, I'm with you. So in an ideal world, people should be able to say whatever they want on their own time, on their own social media channels, over email, whatever. Um, that's their right. It's America. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to grow up, and when somebody would get mad at you, you'd say, shut up, it's a free country. Uh, I don't know if kids today say it's a free country anymore. But yeah, I'm fine with people saying ridiculous, horribly offensive things and not losing their jobs over it. Um, but at the same time, uh, I also like single standards. I don't like double standards. And what we have in America today is a clear double standard where left-wingers can say whatever they want, no matter how ridiculous or absurd or insulting or offensive, and they get constant get-out-of-jail-free cards. But if a guy who won a World Series and played in one of the most iconic games uh, of the last 50 years, maybe even the last century in baseball, when he gets canned because he says something on Facebook and and it's because he's conservative, when Sage Steele gets disciplined um, because she's kind of conservative, uh, but Jamel Hill can just go off and be a total nut bar on Twitter and, and be totally fine. That's ridiculous. Uh, and, and just to be clear, I don't think Jamel Hill should get fired because of what she tweeted. She should get fired because her show is awful and she's terrible at her job. Speaking to Sean Davis, he's a co-founder of The Federalist. Sean, we've been talking about this a lot, but I do want to get your your take of what to make of the Trump DACA situation in the last 24 hours. Uh, it's, I kind of have two running thoughts. Um, I'll say three. I'm not at all surprised by it. He had telegraphed this for quite a while. Um, I am, I was kind of shocked by the, just the social media frenzy last night. Uh, everyone chest thumping, uh, this, this is exactly what we said would happen. And that Trump's a hypocrite and, uh, how dare he? And I was right. I'm vindicated. But the thing that I'm most intrigued by is that after Charlottesville, we were told by so many people uh, in the left wing, it's not enough just to condemn Trump in order to be pure and not have us call you a racist Nazi, uh, white supremacist. You have to also oppose everything Trump does. So I guess my question for Democrats is, how did you go from if you work with Trump, you're a white supremacist to Boy, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer sure did a great job working with Trump on this deal. Aren't they, aren't they required morally to oppose everything he does? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a very astute point, Sean. If if he's too beyond the pale, if he's too much of a, of a disgrace to the office to give even a modicum of respect to, which I think most of the media and much of the Democratic Party subscribes to that theory— well, that has to be, there has to be a principle at work there, right? It can't just be, until he gives us nice stuff, then we'll do whatever. <laughs> that, that can't be the way it goes. Right. And, and, but as far as the deal goes, uh, I don't get it. I don't understand what the calculus was here. It, it seems to me to be a terrible deal all around the way it's been reported. With that said, um, it doesn't appear to be done yet. Uh, there were lots of ways out, for example, uh, I think uh, Schumer said they had agreed in principle, but they still needed to work out the mechanics on border security. I could probably drive a truck through uh, loopholes and agreement that require... You could probably uh, drive a truck through border security, but that's another discussion. <laughs> yeah, So, but, but overall, I, the deal strikes me as a terrible thing. And one thing I have said all along is that I don't care so much what Trump says because Trump says everything about everything. 
I care what Trump does. And what he's doing on here makes little sense to me and doesn't seem to be in line with what he promised when he ran for president. All right. Sean Davis, everybody. The Federalist, as I've told you, one of my favorite sites. We had uh, Ben Dominich, the uh, other co-founder of The Federalist, on earlier in the week. we got Sean Davis on now. Go to thefederalist.com. It's one of my browser tabs. Great site. Really like the work they do there, including Sean's pieces. Sean, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Always good to have you. Thank you, Buck. Have a great day. You too. Uh, so, team, I have some uh, updates on the Berkeley Ben Shapiro speech coming up here. I mean, they are, it's like they're bracing for World War III over there. I love the, the way they report it, though. It's, you know, riots expected at conservative speech. Is, is somebody behind those riots? And do they have a political affiliation? Or is just just a conservative speaks and riots happen? Because, you know, it's like spontaneous combustion of riots. So, yeah, that's something that's happening. And uh, coming up in the third hour, I'm going to talk to you about we're going to do a history deep dive, which I haven't done a while on the show. This one's going to actually be a bit more in-depth. It'll be a deeper deep dive than some of the recent ones. Uh, And I really hope you enjoy it. It will be one of the most incredible battles in all history. Uh, Certainly one of the most incredible battles of the Mediterranean uh, fight between the forces of the Islamic conquest and the Christian forces of Europe. So we'll get to that. In hour three, stay with me until then. Then you might also think in your class, hold on, so does that double standard apply to apply to other stuff? Does that double standard mean that maybe my college professors are not giving me the full story? You know, does that mean that when I'm studying Midi's history and they're talking about how gentle, kind, multicultural, and wonderful the Ottoman Empire was, that maybe they're not giving me the full scoop? The answer to that, by the way, is yes. And I, I'm, I'm on a one-man mission to try to change the uh, preposterous histories on college campuses about the caliphate and and the various iterations of the caliphate with the height of it reaching the uh, uh, height of it with the Ottoman Empire. And to that end, my friends, uh, in the next hour, I want to talk to you about one of the most important battles in the history of the Mediterranean. You can argue one of the most important battles in the history of Western civilization and certainly Christendom, the siege of Malta coming up next. Stay with me. The Siege of Malta, Part 1. This week is the anniversary of one of the most important battles in the history of the Mediterranean, of Europe, of Christendom, and with it, the Western world. It was on this week in September of 1565 that the forces of one of the holy orders, a relic of the Crusades in the Near East, the Knights of St. John, the Knights Hospitaller, they were able to repel a massive invasion force by the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent on the island of Malta after a protracted, vicious, bloody, no-quarter siege that took the entirety of the summer. And finally, after weeks of near starvation, complete deprivation, and Hopelessness were it not for the sense of religious purpose in their cause, the Knights of St. John and their Maltese hosts and soldiers were able to defeat this incredible concentration of 16th century military power. Nothing is better known than the Siege of Malta, Voltaire famously wrote, if only that were true. I can assure you that in schools and classrooms across the country this week, you will not be hearing teachers give lectures on how had a few things gone differently, had a few battles during key moments 
gone the other way, the Ottomans, the Islamic conquest, would have taken Malta and with it an absolutely essential beachhead for the staging of an invasion into Sicily and then Italy and with it the heart of Europe itself. Had the Ottomans been able to take the island of Malta in 1565, it is very likely that the entirety of the European Christian kingdoms would have been under immediate threat and the entire course of the world as we know it, of the Western world, would have been. I want to tell you about this battle that is a reminder of both the bravery and ferocity that went on for centuries in the fights between uh, Islamic forces and Christian forces in the high period of the Ottoman Empire, which was also the caliphate. It was the de facto religious leader of the Muslim world, and it sought complete domination of Europe and with it the rest of the world. This was at the time of the great global exploration. In fact, there were already Islamic emissaries making their way as far from Europe and what is modern-day Turkey as Southeast Asia. Had the Ottomans been able to threaten, choke off, and eventually overtake European forces, we would be living in a very different world. And the reason I want to tell you about this siege, often called the Great Siege of Malta, is because we should all know just how close it came. We should also know that while our children and while many of us were taught in school that the Ottomans were a tolerant and multicultural and pluralistic people, the Ottoman Empire was built on conquest and slavery and absolute brutality and a ferocity of Islamic conquest that has been whitewashed from the history books. I want to tell you about what happened in Malta because to understand what the mentality was of the holy warriors of the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, to know what the Janissaries were, what they believed, and where they came from. The elite shock troops of the Ottoman Empire is to have a window into a mentality that we face to this day when staring across the battlefield at the soldiers of the caliphate, whether in Syria, Iraq, or anywhere else. And it was only because of the incredible leadership and indefatigable courage of Christian knights on this tiny and otherwise insignificant island in the middle of the Mediterranean that we were able to defeat the expansion, to able to defeat the jihad that was being waged at that time and that went on for centuries. So first, let's talk about what happened that led up to this. The Knights of St. John, or the Knights Hospitaller, were a holy order, a religious order, initially formed in the Holy Land, in what is now Israel and the surrounding territories, in order to provide care for sick pilgrims. Christians at this time would make pilgrimages to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, and they would often become sick on the way or sick while visiting, and the Knights Hospitaller were providing care to them. But over time, because of the Crusades and because of the fighting back and forth between Christians and Muslims and the attacks on the caravans of pilgrims, 
the Knights became a fighting order, similar in that regard to the Knights Templar and the Teutonic Knights. But it was the Knights of St. John who, after the fall of Jerusalem, went through a series of exile and retrenchment. Uh, They set up shop first in Cyprus and later in Rhodes. And it was, in fact, the conflict in Rhodes that leads directly to what happens here that we will talk about in Malta, 1565, ending on September the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, depends on when you want to declare the formal end of the siege. But at Rhodes, the Knights of St. John had established a fortress from which they were engaged in piracy against the Ottomans. And this was all about dominance in the Mediterranean. Mediterranean trade was essential to the world of the 15th, 16th, 17th century. And the Ottomans were in a struggle against the Christian states for supremacy there. The Knights of St. John were useful to the Christian monarchs of Europe because they were constantly harassing, attacking, pillaging, and plundering the sultan's incredibly wealthy uh, merchant trade and also attacking his fleet, his ships, whatever they could. Now, Rhodes had been a base for that piracy against the Ottoman Empire, against Muslim shipping, and eventually Suleiman, also known as Suleiman the Magnificent, who was the single sultan, the single leader of the Ottomans, who was most successful in expanding the domains of the caliphate by force, he decided that it was time to take Rhodes. And Rhodes, which is an island that is off current day Turkey, was close enough to reinforcements and close enough to all of the Ottoman power that could be brought to bear that despite the incredible fortifications And this is in an era when, yes, there was gunpowder, but thick enough walls and uh, uh, well-designed and defended bastions and ramparts and other aspects of siege warfare could withstand even a determined assault with cannon and mortar and basilisk, which is named for a dragon. And it's essentially a very large artillery piece that often fired just a giant heavy stone these fortifications could usually withstand a siege for at least a period of time that would allow for reinforcements to come. But Rhodes was simply too close to the seat of power itself in Istanbul. Rhodes eventually capitulated. And Suleiman gave the ultimatum to the Knights of St. John, who had set up their fortress in Rhodes, that if you quit, if you stop fighting, you will be allowed to leave. This was a decision that he would later come to regret and to... So in 1522, Suleiman, with an army of 100,000, was able to take roads from the Knights of St. John, but they were allowed to leave intact. They wandered, the Knights of St. John, without a fortress, without a home, without a place where they could gather in order to carry out their mandate of defending the faith and taking the fight to their non-believing infidel enemies. Then in 1530, the Emperor Charles V of Spain gave the island of Malta to the Order of St. John in order for them to regroup and, yes, 
to continue their attacks on shipping and piracy against the Ottomans, their sworn enemies. This would be a fateful decision because Malta is, geographically speaking, absolutely priceless territory. It is worth gold to a geopolitical strategist in the Mediterranean, particularly at this time when travel by sea was essential both for the movement of goods and in the Mediterranean basin for the deployment of massive armed forces. So by giving this order, the Knights of St. John, an island to make their fortress and to wage warfare on the high seas against the Ottoman Empire, they were setting in place a bulwark against the Islamic conquest. Already at this time, Suleiman had pushed as far as the gates of Vienna in 1529. I've already spoken to you about 1683 and that gates of Vienna incident where you had the Ottomans trying once again to go into the heart of Europe. But in 1529, it was a turn of luck and some skilled fighting from the Christian defenders, including the brightly colored mercenaries known as the Lensknechts, who put up quite a fight against the Ottomans and turned them away at the gates of Vienna in 1529. By the time 1565 rolls around, or 1564, when the decision was made to prepare for the invasion of Malta, the Sultan had had enough. He turned over the command of his forces, both his fleet and the best of his troops, which at the time were considered among the finest in the world, including the Janissaries. The Sultan handed over command to Mustafa Pasha as the supreme general for his land forces and Piala Pasha as the supreme naval commander. To this split command, which was one of the major blunders of this whole campaign, you could add in the infamous feared Barbary pirate Dragut, who also showed up with his fleet from the coast of North Africa. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I want to tell you a bit more about this island of Malta, its defenses, its preparations, and the stakes for the coming battle on Malta in 1565. The siege, the greatest siege in many ways, of the era of holy warfare between Cross and Crescent. More on this when we come back. The Siege of Malta, Part 2. When I left you last, we were talking about how this rocky island in the middle of the Mediterranean in 1565, a scene that ended in September, in fact, September 11th into September 12th was the end of the formal siege. So we are commemorating it this week, uh, that this island was not valuable real estate in the sense that it was uh, fruitful in the sense that it had agricultural value. In fact, Malta isn't good for a whole lot other than a harbor and as a place from which to launch ships. And for that, it is actually excellent. So what happened was that the Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, managed to kick the Knights of St. John, a holy order from the Crusades, out of their island fortress in Rhodes. And then King Charles V of Spain handed over Malta to the Knights of St. John. But then in 1564, Suleiman decided that he could no longer 
allow this holy order of Christian knights taken from royal families across Europe. In fact, they were broken up into langs for their languages. So if you were from the English lang or the French or the Spanish, you would be grouped together. It was kind of like their fire team, if you will. They were a tight-knit unit based upon their origin, their, their national origin and their language. Um, but the knights had been raiding against the Ottomans, and the Ottomans had been raiding against the Christians all throughout the 15th and into the 16th century. This was a period of galley warfare. What's amazing is that there was, in fact, gunpowder used all the time in warfare at this period. People had small arms, they had cannons, uh, and that was brought to bear in indecisive in fashion in the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, which we will be talking about in October, the commemoration of that incredible victory of the allied Christian states over the jihadist advance into Europe. But galley warfare relied on human power to make the oars move the ships. This is old school. They were essentially using the same technology benches with guys on them pulling big oars to move their ships that were used all the way back in ancient Greece and ancient Rome in their trireme warfare. So this is a technology uh, that it, on the calm waters of the Mediterranean hadn't changed all that much. Propulsion by human power over sailing ships was still the order of the day. And for that, you needed Slaves. Now, they weren't all slaves on these galley benches, but that was a primary means of keeping these ships in motion. And so the Ottomans and the Christians would seize both people from the other religion as well as their own religion in cases of warfare to be slaves on their galley benches. So Malta was perfect for this because you had a limited range that ships could go and so its geographic location, just to the north of the Barbary states of North Africa, just to the south of Sicily, if you kept going up, you'd hit the southern tip of the boot of Italy. Malta is prime real estate. This is also why later on, even in the Second World War, there was another siege of Malta, which ended in 1942 and was a dramatic contest between the Royal Air Force of Great Britain and the Royal Navy against the forces of Italy and Germany. So Malta is an important little rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. It also has a fascinating history. It is believed that the original inhabitants of Malta are descendants of the great seafarers of the Mediterranean known as the Phoenicians. Not only did we have advances in sailing technology from this seafaring people, but also, of course, the Phoenician alphabet, which from which we derived uh, Middle Eastern as well as uh, European scripts. So back to Malta, it is named, it is believed at least, because there were so many different groups that had occupied this little island over time, that it is a bastardization of the Greek term for honey, melita. But before that, it was, it is thought that the Phoenicians referred to it as maleth, uh, or a haven. So over time, it changed. You had the Greek word uh, meli or melita for honey. The Romans called it melita. It was a place that could 
produce some pretty good honey. It was a, an island of sweetness in that sense. But the most important part of Malta to understand is that it is two islands, the island of Malta and the island of Gozo to its north, which is a smaller and less important island, but their geographic location smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean and really bisecting the Mediterranean Sea, plus the excellent, incredibly uh, well laid out port in the Grand Harbor made it an essential place. And for galley warfare, when you had to have ships that could be protected from the seas and that also could be protected by raised guns and fortresses nearby, the Grand Harbor of Malta was priceless strategic real estate and Sultan Suleiman wanted it. Now, the Knights of Malta had had, they're now known as the Knights of Malta, the Knights of St. John at the time, the Knights Hospitaller, had had time to set up some pretty substantial defenses. And as I said, this is an era of gunpowder, but you have a mix in warfare of gunpowder and steel with ancient technologies, and that includes really what is just a modern version of castle building. The fortresses that they built in places named Singlea, Birgu, and Fort St. Elmo, which we'll be talking about more in just a few minutes, were essential for the defense of this island. So you have a very valuable piece of real estate. You have the Christian forces of not just the inhabitants of Malta, but also the Knights of St. John, and they were hated, absolutely hated by the Ottomans, by Suleiman himself, and he sent two of his most trusted military advisors with a force of at least 30, perhaps as many as 50,000 to take this one tiny little island. We'll talk more about it in just a few. Stay with me. The Siege of Malta, Part 3. So we've discussed the lead-up to what was one of the most important battles in the history of the Mediterranean, certainly in the history of the Cross versus Crescent, Jihad versus Christendom wars that lasted over centuries that they don't talk to us enough about in school. We don't learn about it. They don't, they don't teach this. And when they do, they come up with all of these bizarre and politicized narratives of what happened. Let me give you a perfect example before I tell you more about the actual siege preparations and the forces that landed and that were squaring off against each other. But this will tie into it. There was a group known as the Janissaries. Now, they were considered the most skilled and most feared of all of the Sultan, in this case, Suleiman the Magnificent, of all of his forces. The Janissaries in their brightly colored clothing and their turbans carrying a precursor to the modern rifle, an arquebus, and a scimitar, and other hand-to-hand combat weapons. They were feared all across the Mediterranean, and they were the elite shock troops of the Sultan. Janissary means in Turkish, new soldier. This was a corps of soldiers that were actually Christians. You see, the Ottoman conquest had gone into Eastern Europe, and for centuries there was a process by which they would, they would be brought in under the Dev Shirma system, and then they would receive military and political and bureaucratic training because they were actually put into many different parts of the sultan's uh, government, if you will. The sultan had used them in, a ver- in various capacities, but the one for which they were most famous was in a military capacity, and they were Christians. 
they were seized at a at a young age, usually around the age of eight to fourteen. Uh, so they were young boys taken from their families in what is now Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and they were raised as subjects. They were converted to Islam and raised as subjects of the Sultan, and then were used as shock troops of the Sultan. And the Janissaries were feared all across the Mediterranean world and throughout all of the Ottoman Empire's domains. Keep in mind, at this point in time, the 16th, the mid-16th century, the Ottoman Empire was the single most powerful military force in the Western world. Its domains were vast, stretching from what is modern Turkey all the way across North Africa into Eastern Europe and all throughout what is now the modern Middle East. The sultan's domains stretched on well beyond what any Christian prince or king could claim. And so the sultan had a particular hatred for anyone who would stand up to his rule. The knights, the knights of St. John, the knights hospitaller, were just such a case. They refused to bend the knee. In fact, they continued to raid the shipping lanes and to seize ships Uh, There was a particularly famous corsair, which is really just a fancy way of saying pirate, uh, named Romagas, who later on would be involved after the siege of Malta. He was already renowned for his seamanship, his fighting prowess and skill during the siege of Malta, but later on would be part of a military operation that would lead to the decisive naval engagement at Lepanto in 1571, when you had what was... Before modern times, the single biggest and most impressive assortment of naval surface warfare vessels ever gathered. But Lepanto will have to be a story we talk about another time. So Malta is preparing for this siege, and it was very fortunate because while the command structure of the Ottoman forces that were arrayed against it was separated between Piali Pasha and Mustafa Pasha, Piali the head of the navy, the, the grand admiral, if you will, and Mustafa Pasha, the four-star chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He was the head of the ground forces. And he, on the Christian side, you had a leader who was every bit as dedicated, brave, and yes, fanatical to his cause as any janissary or any slave of the sultan. Leading the knights of St. Jean on Malta, you had Jean Parisot de Valette. He was a French nobleman, and he was the Grand Master of the Order of Malta at the time, the Knights uh, Hospitaller, Knights of St. John on Malta. And he had a keen understanding of military engagements, naval warfare, and everything that was going to occur on Malta. So he was preparing. They were setting up with supplies they were setting up once their spies came back and told them. Because at this period, you could not move a massive armada from the, with the sultan. You couldn't mobilize it and bring together all of the soldiers. 40,000, a standing army of 40,000 or so at the time was massive. And to pull that together and to mobilize it over a 1,000 miles from Istanbul... Uh, you had to bring together tremendous logistical effort, and you had to bring because Malta didn't have much to pillage and plunder, and had even less after Jean pa- uh, de la, after Jean Parisot de Valette had his 
strategy put into place. He made sure that all of the harvest was brought in early. You had a limited time for this campaign as well, which is very important. A limited time to seize the island of Malta by the uh, Sultan's forces and to eradicate. And that was really the plan, to eradicate the last stronghold of what was a vestige, a true vestige of the Crusades, which is what the Knights Hospitaller were. So they brought together these massive forces and de Valette knew that they were coming and prepared with excellence. He made sure that they brought in all of the crops. He made sure that they had uh, worked on the lines of fire from all the different cannons and built up the fortifications as best as he possibly could and understood that while the princes and kings and dukes of Europe would claim, at least, that they would be willing to come to the aid of the knights hospitaller on this island because after... If they lost, it was obvious that Sicily would be next, Italy after that, and from there, the underbelly of Europe wide open to the Islamic conquest. So Valette prepares and makes sure that everything is ready, and there's the Grand Harbor and the surrounding fortifications. I mentioned before to you uh, Senglea, Birgu, and uh, Fort St. Angelo, which was on Burgu, which is a peninsula sticking out into the Grand Harbor. Sanglea is also a peninsula. And then Fort St. Elmo, which stuck out from the rest and was the first place where the major siege was uh, engaged. So you also had a capital, the capital of Malta is Medina, which has clear Arabic roots. The, uh, the Arabic word for city is Medina, but that was the capital, and that was where the Maltese, because there were inhabitants, about 10,000 or so inhabitants of Malta at the time, that was their capital city, and they knew to settle in for a siege there as well. So the Ottomans arrive in the middle of May, of, of uh, 1565, they arrive on the island of Malta in full force. They have a, a large number of janissaries. They've brought cavalry, and they've brought a tremendous amount of cannon and mortar to try and take down the fortifications around the Grand Harbor because they knew that that was where the Knights Hospitaller had made their home, and that was also the strong point on the island. Now, a lot of military historians have looked at some of the decisions made from the Ottoman perspective at this time and view them in retrospect, and they ended up losing, of course, to be disastrous. They could have taken Medina out, the capital city, which was in the center of the island of Malta, but they decided not to. They could have cut off Malta from the north with a, a naval blockade that was effective, but they didn't really put that in place either. There was a bit of arrogance to the Ottomans at this time. They really did think that not only were they the most well-funded and well-supplied military in the world at the time, but that they were essentially unstoppable because Allah, because God, was on their side. Because the Sultan was the Caliph, the head of the Ummah, the Islamic community, and Suleiman the Magnificent in particular had had victory after victory, only being turned back, as I mentioned, by the Landsknechts, the German mercenaries in their colorful clothing at the siege of Vienna in 1529. Suleiman wanted payback, and he wanted to finish off these troublesome, meddlesome knights who were Christian fanatics, 
who believed that they were doing God's work and that they were going to prevent the Islamization of Europe with the force of their arms. So they have a landing and the landing is unopposed because Valette knows that he doesn't want to go toe to toe. He only has about 9,000 soldiers in total, including Maltese and Spanish regular infantry. Uh, Spanish at the time were a major military power and hundreds of knights. But the knights were only in the hundreds. On the other side of the battlefield, you had the vast might of the invading sultan's forces, including thousands and thousands of cavalry and janissaries. They made a very important decision, though. They did not go for Medina to eliminate that, and Medina would come back to haunt them, because while it wasn't a concentration of military power on the island, it did, in fact, play a role later on in the conflict. And they would come to regret leaving their rear open to Medina and its cavalry forces. Uh, But they also could have uh, gone straight for the main fortifications of the Grand Harbor and tried to take from the beginning the Fort Fort St. Angelo uh, and Birgu, which is the peninsula, and try to take Sanglea as well. That those were the two main fortifications. Fort St. Elmo, which stuck out on a a rocky outcropping, uh, that was a place that they could have taken and but didn't have to. But in one of the great historical what ifs, they decided that they wouldn't go right for the Grand Harbor, that they would go north of what was the Grand Harbor to the uh, Marsa Muschietto and they would settle in there. And to do that, they had to take Fort St. Elmo. Now, Fort St. Elmo had been well prepared by Vallette for a long siege. And while there was an initial engagement of, uh, of minor consequence outside the walls of what were the main fortifications by the knights, they went out and there was an initial sally against the, uh, initial sally against the Ottoman troops, but then they withdrew and they stayed behind the walls because they knew they were outnumbered at least three, more like four or five to one. They had no shot in open warfare out in the field against the Ottomans, and A very important distinction here was that behind those fortifications, not only did you have the advantage of the high ground and defensive ramparts, which were essential for the entirety of the siege, but the knights in particular, as well as their infantrymen, the Christian knights uh, of St. John, wore heavy plate armor. The Ottoman troops primarily wore loose-fitting tunics and loose clothing, which kept them mobile and meant they were less likely to overheat, which was a constant problem throughout the summer months in Malta. Malta is incredibly hot, uh, and it was incredibly hot during the time of the siege, but it also meant that they were much more likely to withstand close-quarters combat. And so one heavily armored knight was able to fight off many of the Muslim vanguard who would try to get over the walls and were lightly if armored at all and just had scimitars and an arquebus which is uh, similar to a a musket uh, but it was often supported on a tripod and it's it's one of the earliest long guns that you will see Um, and it clearly took a long time to reload but the ottomans were pretty accurate with it which would play a large role in the siege as well but with fort saint angelo the decision was made that they would take I'm sorry, with Fort St. Elmo, 
the decision was made that they, with Fort St. Elmo, the decision was made that they would take the fort at all costs. That was the first major part of the campaign. And it took, they thought it would take days, perhaps a week. It went on for over a month. And Vallette knew that he had to extend the duration of the siege to get reinforcements from Europe. Yes, they all said they would send reinforcements, but he was a savvy enough, long-standing enough warrior to know that he was going to be on his own. It was Vallette, his knights, and the Maltese inhabitants who, while not enamored with their newly arrived or relatively recently arrived uh, knights of St. John, hated the Ottoman Turks who had a long-standing reputation for uh, enslaving Christians and and brutal treatment of them, and the Maltese were Christians. So they settled in for a long and brutal uh, fight with just one effort to pound it into the dust after another, bombardment after bombardment, day and night, And a critical part of this was that Fort St. Elmo was able to be reinforced at night across the Grand Harbor. And there were various points in the uh, weeks of the siege of St. Elmo where had there not been the ability to reinforce at night, then they probably would have lost the entirety of the conflict because holding out was essential. I want to talk to you more about what happened at St. Elmo, and I'm going to have to hold that for tomorrow. But let me just say this. This is a conflict that quickly turns into Ottomans capturing Christians, cutting off their heads, tying them to crosses, and floating them across the harbor for their comrades in arms to see. And then Vallette responding in kind by executing every Muslim captive in his dungeons, loading their heads into cannons, and firing them across the harbor at the Turkish invaders. We're going to want to talk about that tomorrow. So um, let me uh, get a quick close here uh, on the other side of the break, team. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. Buck Sexton here. I hope you enjoyed our little uh, diversion into history today. I'm planning to uh, finish up the Siege of Malta with you tomorrow in the third hour of the show. So if you like the history deep dives, let me know. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And if you're not into it, you can let me know that, too, and I'll, I'll take it. I'll sort of look at a it's like a straw poll via Facebook. I'll figure out whether people uh, enjoy these uh, history deep dives thrown into the show here and there. Um, it'll be mostly a, a third hour thing, and uh, I really enjoy it, and I like doing the research and the reading for it. And so if, if it's something that you all support, if Team Buck likes it, there'll be more of it. If not, well, we can go back to some of the other Subject matter, news of the day, political analysis, national security, deep dives, and everything else going on. But I like to spice it up here in the Freedom Hut. I like to make it a spicy meatball in the Freedom Hut. So uh, please do let me know and uh, share it, actually, with a friend. That'd be great, too. Say, hey, check out this guy. He did this cool Siege of Malta sort of mini podcast during his radio show. And it might be a really good way to get some new folks in to Team Buck. Um, We are growing every month, thanks to all of you, and I really appreciate that. Uh, one more thing, BucksXon.com. You can get gear if you go to BucksXon.com slash store. Tomorrow's going to be a Freestyle Friday. We'll do Facebook Friday, which means that I'll be reading off some comments there at one point during the show. So if you send me something really funny or really nice, uh, no mean stuff, <laughs> then I'll read it on air. 
Uh, until tomorrow, my friends, I greatly appreciate your time. And, well, you know what's coming. Shields high.